we we gave this to him and we have an obligation to see it through silently tracing the cracks through the chaos it's frustrating because you know him on a personal level that was hard grieving would cannot come back what's gone away there was kind of a feeling of we are in uncharted waters feeling if transplant is not an option, then what are we doing? You can't find your way through the black, so you pray for life. I think it's unethical. It shouldn't be like this. This is the story of a perfect storm. What happens when struggling, overstressed healthcare workers in the midst of COVID 19? care for a man who embodies hope. From the Mind of Medicine podcast, this is Parallel Pandemics. I'm clinical health psychologist, Dr. Ryan Brashears. You're listening to episode four. This year, the 4th of July is a day of special celebration. A year of pain, fear, and heartbreaking loss. Just think back to where this nation was a year ago. Think back to where you were a year ago. And think about how far we've come. From empty stadiums and arenas to fans back in their seats cheering together again. From families pressing hands against a window to grandparents hugging their grandchildren once again. America is coming back together. 245 years ago, we declared our independence from a distant king. Back then, we had the power of an idea on our side. Today, we have the power of science. When President Biden gave his July 4th, 2021 speech, for many of the reasons he mentioned, there was reason for optimism. At that time, the seven-day average for COVID-related hospitalizations was about 18,000, and the running mortality rate was approximately 230 deaths per day across the U.S. Now, those might sound like big numbers, but they hadn't been that low since early March 2020 during the first wave. Declining hospitalizations suggested that access to vaccinations was providing the pathway out of this pandemic pathways being one of those foundational criteria that Dr. Hellman noted is a prerequisite for hope in the last episode. Within the healthcare sector, though, that optimism was short-lived. In the three weeks following Independence Day, there was a 117% increase in the national seven-day hospitalization average and a 34% increase in the seven-day mortality rate. Across Wellstar's hospitals, the mortality rate increased 135% across that three-week span. At Kennestone, as the ICU team braced for what they sensed was ahead, they also read the writing on the wall with regards to Carlos. What happened in there? Why did it happen? How did it happen? What could we have done differently? Was he just getting tired? Did his lungs need more help? What's going on? And it was just kind of utter disbelief. When you see somebody you think is actually has a fighting chance with COVID, 
take a setback that big. When I see him again, he's like, what happened? It was hard for him to sit down. Still giving everything, but but it was it was difficult now. You could see it. I'm like, oh, so maybe he's not going to make it. Over the same stretch of days in which concerns about another COVID surge were heightened, Carlos, the symbol of hope, had declined and required sedation. Critical conversations were needed, and on July 6th, Jordan Potter, a member of the Wellstar Ethics Service, was consulted by Carlos's care team. We helped um, with the code status decision originally um, because he had limited family that was available. And so we worked with the team to make sure that he got an appropriate code status and there was a good plan moving forward with his family that was available. This is a pretty typical consult request for the ethics team. Ensuring that a patient's desires are well understood should the treatment course fail and death becomes imminent, and identifying a surrogate decision maker should the circumstances require one. For Carlos, options were limited. In Georgia, the default hierarchy of authorized surrogate decision makers for most medical decisions starts with one, a healthcare power of attorney, two, a spouse, three, a legal guardian, four, adult children, five, parents six adult siblings, and so on. Early in his care, Carlos had appointed his cousin to function as a surrogate, but with his most recent setback, the Kennestone team had a sense of urgency. Just before July 4th, Dr. Ramon spoke with Carlos's cousin and explained that the situation was looking dire. His cousin began making efforts to contact his siblings in Mexico to enlist their participation in medical decision-making should the need arise. The family requested a Catholic priest who visited Carlos, and then Dr. Chaloub convened a family meeting with the care team. Carlos's sister joined by phone. I had a meeting with his his sister. His brother was unable to join. His cousin, who was his spokesperson in the country, his second cousins, his friend, all of them came. Their kids came. Everybody was in the room during the time when we were able to open the ICU for them to come in. So they all came, we all sat together, we all talked, and we all figured out what Carlos would want, since at that time he was unable to participate with us. And then we came up with decision planning, with with a plan of action, with um, end-of-life decisions in case that came to. The family was clear during that meeting that they didn't want Carlos to suffer and that he would not want to be resuscitated if he went into cardiopulmonary arrest. The decision was made to assign Carlos a DNAR code status. Do not attempt to resuscitate. Ethics signed off. Carlos remained sedated over the following week. When the team attempted to wean sedation, his oxygen saturation dropped quickly. He was still unable to participate in physical therapy. And then a week after the family meeting, in typical Carlos fashion, he demonstrated signs of bouncing back. But he rallied. It's amazing. It's amazing how how strong people can get. And you you were standing at the door, big door, and looking at them. How how can one be so resilient? How can people be so strong? Documentation in the medical record at that time read: awake and responsive. Surprisingly, patient was able to participate in some physical therapy, able to sit up with help. The next day. His physical therapist noted that he had improved sitting tolerance and actively participated in his treatment. 
One physician note stated that Carlos was looking more and more awake every day, but as alert as he was, he was still dependent on life support, and those glimmers of hope would again fade in the days to come. He had another infection, and during this infection, he became more debilitated, more bedbound, not able to do much, but cognitively very intact. His lungs were so damaged, there was, there was no way out of him. His lungs were completely scarred up. His lungs' participation into his breathing was just not there. We had tried every single intervention that was possible. We've consulted with other parties, outside parties, to see if anybody else, any other, any other program had any other suggestions. Despite the team's best efforts and Carlos's resilience, reality began to set in. There's a quote from Dr. Atul Gawande in his book, Being Mortal. When talking about clinicians, Gawande refers to the satisfaction of competence, which he says comes from being technically skilled and able to solve intricate, difficult problems. He then says, for a clinician, therefore, there's nothing more threatening to who you think you are than a patient with a problem you cannot solve. Whether that be a technical problem, a, um, a scientific problem, it could also be um, an issue that's uh, intractable in your personal realm, um, psychosocial realm, for example, communication with families, and um, that can also be that. But um, all of these things, you know, we're all wired and motivated to um, move things in a positive direction. And a lot of times that means solving a problem. As I've I guess, learned through the years that there may not be a solution to a problem. And so movement in a, a positive direction means um, shifting or setting a different guidepost to see, try to find what is what it means to be moving in the right direction, what it means to be doing good in the realm of what is possible. Gawande's statement also resonates with clinicians and leaders who have tried to alleviate the emotional burdens shouldered by their colleagues and the people they support. We work shoulder to shoulder that, with them and we hurt for them, like our ICU nurses, the physicians, the respiratory therapists. And that's hard too, is because we don't know how to help them either. How do we give them comfort? How do we give them peace? I've had colleagues calling me in tears or you see the nurses that are exhausted and your words just fail you, um, you just feel helpless. Um, and so that's, that's really difficult. Difficulties magnified given the hard conversations and decisions at hand. To complicate matters further during the third wave, with COVID hospitalizations surging again, ECMO was in increased demand. I spoke with one of our ECMO doctors and they got 12 referrals for ECMO in a single day or maxed out I and mean, there's nothing we can do. In that situation, you simply say, I'm so sorry. If anything changes, we'll let you know. But these 12 people that need an ECMO are looking all around. They're likely going to die. If they need ECMO, if they've gotten to that point, there's nothing you can do. At Kennestone, there are only six ECMO machines. But according to Dr. Saberi, quantity isn't the only issue. The other issue is that even with more machines, nursing staffing shortages were limiting the ability to scale the ECMO program to support more patients. So renting more machines wouldn't solve the problem. The result of these complexities? Every decision of who is placed on ECMO 
and the staff needed to support them directly affects the number of lives that can be saved. Obviously, this is a limited resource, so you have to balance your own um, math about the probability that this patient is going to get better with the need for ECMO in other people who are eligible for it as well. Our commitment, obviously, is to somebody we've already put on ECMO. We want to give them the best chance of recovery. Carlos's health status being what it was, weeks had passed without native lung recovery. Sitting with that reality, Dr. Lee's insight, the need to set a different guidepost to try to determine the right direction, became the team's imperative. Okay, if transplant is not an option, then what are we doing? Is it likely for him to heal? That test of time has actually shown he's gotten weaker and weaker. That's one point of view. Another point of view is, I guess, a more romantic point of view. <laughs> and um, I was on that side, I guess. We're not some deity. We're not God. And um, scientific knowledge is limited. And who knows, you might get better. We've had patients in the past, past that's um, 50-something days, I guess, um, that when it seemed darkest, then a light switch came on and they got better. <laughs> we don't know what we did. Is it even us? I don't think so. But we just kept on plugging along and they got better. So, you know, that sort of discussion came up. The team, uh, meaning all the physicians, the ECMO physicians, and also, of course, um, you know, solicited comments from, um, you know, nursing staff and um, just to gauge how they're feeling about this. And both points of view were occupied by both the physicians and the nursing staff. They're also very, this is, this becomes very passionate. At this point, we're just, you know, we're, we're attached, right? We know this person. Yeah. So the person with personality, we've gotten to know him. For many, like Megan Graham, a Kenistone nurse who had also formed a close bond with Carlos, there was a general sentiment that even the fact that the team was in such a conflicted position was unjust. That Carlos was disqualified for transplant because of social factors, insurance limitations, etc., didn't sit well with her. I remember thinking how wrong the whole situation was, how unethical and unfair and it shouldn't be like this. How come one person gets an opportunity that another person doesn't? It's not fair. I think it's unethical. Chris Cambrone shared similar feelings. I would talk with other therapists who'd work with him and was familiar with his case and other nurses asking, why isn't he able to? Is it just because he's undocumented? And it's frustrating because you know him on a personal level. On paper, it makes sense, and it's a very ethical thing. He's undocumented. Why should he get the lungs over somebody else who is a documented citizen? On paper, that makes total sense. But knowing him in person, he is just as deserving as anybody else. And that was hard. That was frustrating, and that was very upsetting. Grappling with the decision of whether to continue ECMO for the purpose of prolonging Carlos's life or withdrawing him from ECMO, which would end his life, that was the decision that had to be made. Jordan Potter and Brian Kibbe of the ethics team were again consulted. Carlos was clearly not improving, but unlike the first time ethics was involved, now he was fully alert. 
we engage ethics and palliative care to try to guide us, see what is the, the right thing to do. There are so many ethical considerations. The good and bad thing is, is that he was awake, he can communicate, he can write. Of course, the difficult part is that he's awake as well, right? I think in addition to him being someone who is awake and alert and can build those relationships, it's also this kind of more active component about potentially withdrawing of ECMO or other therapies that had a lot of people really morally distressed. People feel a more active role whenever they talk about withdrawing. One of the physicians on the case was like, we, we gave this to him and we have an obligation to see it through and, and to see if that's something that he can benefit from because we don't know at this point. And it was this prognostic uncertainty that really made this decision and made these facts an issue so difficult because people did feel like they were actively taking something away um, if they were going to stop the ECMO support. There was kind of a feeling of we were in uncharted waters. The clinical picture was becoming clearer, you know, that this uh, patient was becoming sicker, was not likely to recover. Um, and I think at that point, the, that sort of nagging uncertainty um, shifted to grief. I remember visiting with several of the clinicians at the bedside, um, and there were tears in, in several of their eyes. You know, um, it was clear that this was affecting them, had affected them. Um, so there was certainly that. Um, there was a, I think, a, a sort of deep reverence or respect for the gravity of what was happening. This wasn't sort of business as usual. In this case in particular, the consult request is for us to come and be that objective kind of third party and making sure that we were thinking about this appropriately and not being overly influenced by our emotions and the psychological factors that made this such a difficult choice. When it comes to decision making, emotionalism is a deal breaker. You, you, can't, you have to make decisions in an objective fashion. If you try to involve your emotion, no matter how strong they are in the decision-making, you're invariably gonna make inaccurate decisions. And you, we can't do that. We can't afford that. So as much as you're emotionally involved, you have to separate the emotions when you're making decisions like that. We always do think about ethical judgments and morality as this completely objective, completely rational process. but. Without emotions like empathy or compassion, how can you really make ethical judgments and stuff like that? You know, how can you really say something is moral or ethical if you don't have the empathy to kind of understand the impacts of that? And I, I think our role in this was really to kind of get all the perspectives and then get everyone talking um, because there were absolutely various different perspectives. And I think they were all reasonable perspectives. We held a number of meetings and we had a number of discussions and soul searching because this is the time at which uh, demand for ECMO was rising again with the new uh, surge in the pandemic. And we had declined a number of very eligible young people for ECMO because we had no machines. So on one side of the argument was do we continue to support this individual um, when they have not improved to this point versus we should um, because there is, we brought him along so far and he may recover. It was a very tough thing to, to parse out all of those differing perspectives and deal with this kind of moral distress because there's so much gray area. 
Jordan shared two conversations he had with Kinestem clinicians, both of which he described as powerful. The first involved a discussion he had with a physician who authentically shared his struggle sorting through the decision-making process. His main focus was on not abandoning his obligations to this patient while understanding that you know, he may, it may not be or beneficial for him moving forward. The second story involved an ICU nurse. She just said, I, I don't know if I could even be in the unit the day if, if we have to withdraw. Um, and that was a sense of whether it was a unilateral where we had to stop offering it to him or whether the patient himself even made that decision. And so it was such a powerful thing because she had made such a connection with him and she see how unfortunate of a situation it was and just the very presence of being in the unit that day was unbearable to her and, and unthinkable that she didn't think emotionally psychologically that she could really handle that i think it all revolves around that sense of the clinician patient relationship and that felt sense of we have a responsibility to you and to you specifically you know that you're not just a human, you know, a sort of generic human being, you know, you're this human being, you're Carlos. There were no hasty decisions made. You know, there was a, a desire to be very thoughtful and deliberate, uh, to be sure to involve uh, the patient in that decision-making process. This was not the first time the Kinestone team had sought Carlos's input into his medical decision-making. That was consistently done throughout his hospitalization. And every time, he made his wishes clear. What would you want us to do? And he would say, I want to keep on going. He said, I want to keep going. I want to try. And he proved us that he was capable of rebounding. Dr. Tripp, with palliative care, recounts her interactions with Carlos as well. The first day that I met him, I really just introduced myself, learned about him, learned what was important to him, made sure that I thought he was capable of participating in the conversation, and um, kind of assessed his understanding of what was going on and who he wanted to be his decision maker if he couldn't speak for himself in the future. He could write things out and um, communicate in Spanish, but he could not actually talk with his voice at the time. Dr. Tripp asked Carlos how he felt he was doing, and he wrote, Siento que mejora, pero mucho despacio. Getting better, but very slowly. Dr. Tripp told Carlos that the team was concerned that he may not be able to wean from the ECMO machine, and that for some people this would not be an acceptable quality of life. Carlos wrote out on a piece of paper, Yo quiero vivir. I want to live. One of the questions I ask people a lot is kind of what would be a, a good quality of life for you? And for him, he was, um, if I remember right, he was just saying like, it would be good if I could talk to other people and maybe play some soccer. The following day, Dr. Chaloub convened another multidisciplinary team meeting. Dr. Tripp, Jordan Potter, the ECMO team, and the Spanish interpreter all were present. So we objectively discussed the case, discussed his situations. Like, this is where we're at. This is what's happening. This is what's happening to your body. These are the options we have. And this is the situation we're running in. Um, these are our exit strategies. This is what we can do. And this is our plan of attack. What are your thoughts? And he was very clear, as, as clear as could be. Something that I have very difficulty in in, in expressing for myself, he's like, okay, this is what we're doing. In that conversation, 
Carlos reiterated that if he got worse and couldn't participate in his own decision-making, he wanted his cousin to make medical decisions on his behalf, that he trusted her, and that if he got to the point of being unable to communicate, he would want aggressive care for one to two days. If he didn't rebound, he didn't want all those lines and tubes continued forever, and he didn't want chest compressions. He was very clear about it. He had taken the time to think about his end of life in a way that I've never experienced in somebody his age. Oh, that was hard. Oh, that was hard. Attuned to the gravity of that conversation, Dr. Tripp circled back with Carlos the following day. It probably was quite intimidating to have all of these people in his room talking about this. And so I wanted to give him a space that was a little bit more private just to kind of say, hey, do you remember what we talked about yesterday? Any questions that have come up? And I really thought it was going to be a very quick conversation. I thought, oh, this is a young guy. You you know, he's just going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, you know, get out of here. Keep going. Um, But he actually had some really, really in-depth questions about what is going to happen um, what, what do people really think is going on? Do, do they really think I'm going to get better or not? And it was, it was a tough conversation to, to look this man in the eye and tell him, I really don't know the future entirely, of course, but, but I really don't see you getting out of here in the way that you're hoping for. I'll always remember um, one of the questions that he asked me was, what would the miracle look like? Which is not a question that I have been asked that often. Many times people know what the miracle would look like. But we were having a, a very serious conversation, and I thought that was just an interesting question for him to ask. What would the miracle look like? And I had to sit back and really think about the answer. And I told him, I think the miracle would be if you could get off of that ECMO machine. That I'd, I'd call that, that's what I'd call that. Oftentimes, I'm taking care of people who are older, um, who have been dealing with, or or if they're not older, they've been dealing with their disease for some time. Um, I was thinking about how, for him, this was all very sudden. And one of the questions he asked me was, how can I be so sick when I feel so well? And how can you guys be saying all of this stuff when I feel okay? Um, And I think that that was a a very tough thing for for all of us to see for him because it was really frustrating to say, there's just so much that you would have going for you. You're young, you're healthy. um, You're someone who in our minds, we really should have been able to get better. I think the fact that he was young, this was sudden for him. And that for him, I don't think, I think it was just hard for him to to process that. And it was hard for us to as well, quite honestly. Every clinician we talked with described the situation similarly, how hard these conversations were, how impactful it was to hear the depth of questioning from Carlos, to look him in the eyes and to tell him things that no person wants to hear. But the most difficult part was still to come. The most difficult part is, um, you know, making a call. What I'm gonna call a call of saying, "Okay, this is it. You're not gonna get better." 
And then from then you, you know, you take that and it's your obligation to inform the family that medical therapy will not benefit the patient and then um, and to advise them on a course of action. That's, that's, that's the most difficult part is because um, you have to be very honest with yourself. Um, you have to question your judgment. You have to be quite sure that your judgment is sound and, and informed by knowledge, not prejudice. You know, I mean, this is the weight of a human life on your on your shoulder, right? So the fact that he understood all of this made it easier. Um, but still, he was still dependent upon the call that you have to make as a clinician. And you make that call easier by relying on your colleagues, all your consultants which we did. They never teach you how to make the call in medical. That's never been a class, right? It's never been a class in medical school. It's always like how to, how to get them better, how to get them better, how to never teach you how to determine fertility, right? Making the call challenged by a problem they couldn't solve and struggling to let go of someone they cared deeply for the Kennestone team grappled with the unthinkable decision that no one wanted to make. And yet, as Carlos remained bedbound, awake but not improving, contemplating end of life, the same man who had given hope and inspiration brought smiles and cheers to an emotionally exhausted team, he was about to give one final gift. This was episode four of Parallel Pandemics, a Mind of Medicine podcast, made possible by the Wellstar Health System Foundation. This series is dedicated to all of our frontline healthcare workers, the pillars of compassion. Please support our clinicians by subscribing, rating, and sharing the series. The intro and outro music in this episode was by Nashville singer-songwriter Matthew Perryman-Jones. You can check Matthew's music out at mpjmusic.com. Thank you to Wellstar's Clinician Wellbeing and Resiliency Team and to the Maleshko team for helping coordinate, facilitate, and produce this project. For the conclusion of this series, tune in for Episode 5. <laughs>